If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open to Luke 23, Luke chapter 23. And I like to mention that if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one. So there are some on the back table, and uh, you can grab one of those, and you can take it and keep it. Uh, But I am very glad to have you kids here with us this morning, and um, I hope that uh, you will enjoy hanging out with the grown-ups in here. Um, Before I even read the text, before I I pray, I I want to try and set the stage a little bit uh, this morning by asking a question, and it's it's kind of along the lines of what Trisha was getting at, but mine's a little bit different. Have you ever sacrificed for something— but the value of the object that you sacrificed for ended up exceeding the cost that you paid for it. Or let me say it another way. Have you ever paid a great, a great price for something, but it felt like in the end it was a small price to pay in light of the preciousness of what you received from that thing? Uh, ever paid big bucks for something, but then felt like you got the better end of the deal because this thing was so valuable, it exceeded the price tag attached to it. Um, I have a somewhat Ill, uh, silly illustration. I hope you'll bear with me as I tease this out, okay? Uh, I love Disneyland. Um, when I was a kid, I lived in Southern California and grew up going there with my family very frequently. And I have lots of wonderful memories hanging out with my siblings and my mom and dad and my grandpa at Disneyland. And I've had the blessing of being able to take my kids to Disneyland. How many of you guys here have been to Disneyland? Liked it? Did you like it? Was it cool? Yeah? Some of the parents are like, I've been there. Um, I've had the opportunity, the blessing to be able to take my kids there on a couple of occasions. And the memories that I've made there are just priceless to me. And Leanne and I have actually been planning for several years to take a family trip to Disneyland in several years. We've been socking away just a little bit of money every month to be able to do this together as a family. We want to go and stay at one of the Disneyland hotels and really kind of just like immerse ourselves in the experience. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Like, we'll never do it again. And as much as it might end up costing our family in dollars, we're anticipating that it will cost quite a bit. I honestly believe that as a family, the value that we get out of that experience will be priceless for me and my children and my wife. Um, if you've been to Disneyland, you know it's, it's expensive. It's like absurdly expensive. But if you've ever taken a little kid to Disneyland, then you also know that that experience is just wonderful. Like there's something about it that just, you know, the wonder in their eyes uh, as their imagination kind of comes to life and is real in this experience, okay? Even if it's only for a few hours, to me, those experiences, those memories are really uh, pretty priceless. They exceed the cost when I go there. The price that I pay, I think, pales in comparison to what I get in return. Now, like I said, this is kind of a silly illustration. I hope you'll give me some grace there. But I think it is actually a lot like the Christian life, if you're willing to see it from my perspective and actually admit that you like Disneyland. The cost of the Christian life is dwarfed by the incomprehensibly great rewards that we receive, isn't it? I mean, following Jesus does in fact come at great personal cost, but the cost of following him pales in comparison to the joy that we have in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this, For this light, momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And this is the idea that I want to spend our time drawing out together in our text this morning, okay? The Christian life may come with some personal cost, some suffering, some price to pay, but it's ultimately nothing compared to the reward that we have in Christ. And so let me pray, and then we'll look at this text together. Jesus, there is a lot going on in this room. There's a lot of activity, there's a lot of motion, and that is also like our lives and our hearts. There's a lot going on in our hearts and our lives, there's a lot of motion, there's a lot of busyness and experience and, and, and lots of things that could distract our attention from you. But I pray, Lord, that you would pierce through those things this morning, that as we look at your word, that our hearts would be captivated by you by what the text says, by who you are, by what you've revealed, by how beautiful the gospel is and what it is that you have done to redeem us. Lord, I just ask that for your glory you'd make this time fruitful in our hearts, that we might be transformed into an ever greater likeness of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let me read Luke 20, verses 50 through 50, or Luke 23, sorry, 50 through 56. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and saw how the body of Jesus was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Uh, One of the things I like to do when I teach is kind of get into sort of the technical, historical background, and frankly, there's not too much here for us to get into. Uh, There aren't too many kind of obvious principles for us to draw out. It's pretty straightforward. We have a recounting of the events of Jesus' burial. He died, and then he was put in a tomb. The arrangements that were made around that burial are recorded for us here. And the gospel is here, right? I mean, if you stick around Maricopa Springs, you hear me try and hit this almost every week. The good news of Christianity is explicit in this story. Jesus died. Why did he die? He died for our sins so that we might be saved. And I suspect that most of us in this room, we already know those facts and we believe them and we've entrusted our hearts to Jesus. And we've repeated these ideas over and over and over again over the last few weeks as we've looked at Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and now his burial. And so since this text is pretty straightforward itself, I want to look at some kind of peripheral ideas on kind of the sides of the text here, okay? And um, we'll seek to do this together over the voice of the children in the room with us, which I think is beautiful. Uh, Let's start with verse 51, okay? In verse 51, we find this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and he makes arrangements for the burial of Jesus. And what does it say about Joseph? says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. 
He was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke explicitly says this because he wants us to know that this is what drove Joseph to do what he did in this moment. Um, This wasn't just a guy who, like, you know, had respect for the dead. No, he was looking for the kingdom of God. And so because he was looking for the kingdom of God, Joseph of Arimathea belonged to a counterculture, a small minority of people. Notice how verse 50 tells us that Joseph was a member of this council. The council is this Jewish religious leadership who, the very same people who, after putting Jesus on trial in the middle of the night and falsely accused him of wrongs that he did not do in secret, this Jewish council is the people who decided that Jesus should be executed for his crimes. And they did this uh, with a unanimous decision. If we were to go back to Luke chapter 22, verses 70 or 71, or we were to look at Mark chapter 14, verse 64, what we find is that the authors of these gospel narratives, these books, make it very clear that the Jewish council agreed unanimously that they all agreed that Jesus should be executed for the crime of blasphemy. And so I think it's safe to say, if Joseph of Arimathea belonged to this council and he did not consent to this action of murdering Jesus, then somehow he was not present at this sham trial that took place in the middle of the night. For whatever reason, he was absent. We don't know why he was, but he was. And because he belonged to this counterculture who actually was seeking the kingdom of God, he didn't consent to the decision for Jesus to be executed. Okay, so what we find here is that a majority of the Jewish religious leaders were not seeking the kingdom of God. They were seeking the kingdom of man. A kingdom where their own power, their own wealth, their own glory, their own prestige would be protected and safeguarded. Shh, hey guys. Okay, and then there's this small minority Uh, The small minority like Joseph of Arimathea, these are people who are willing to give up their own power, their own wealth, their own prestige to actually seek out the kingdom of God. And I want to remind you what Jesus taught about his kingdom, words that Matthew records in his gospel. It's a promise, a promise made to you, a promise made to everyone who seeks out this kingdom. They're words that are wonderfully filled with hope and encouragement. Jesus says this, and maybe you know these verses in Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Those who seek find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And so I would ask you the question, do you think that anybody who goes looking for the kingdom of God will be turned away? I would say no. I think we have to answer that question by saying no. Scripture says if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will find, you will receive, and the door will be open. Okay, but don't be deceived. Don't be complacent. Don't get too comfortable. Remember here that Joseph belonged to a counterculture. Notice, was anybody at Joseph's side as he went to Pilate to ask for the body? Pretty much everyone around him 
joined in the mocking of Jesus, joined in the cries for his execution. Joseph was alone in his affection for Jesus among his peers, which is why as he went and asked Pilate for the body, there was nobody beside him saying, we'd like to help you in this process. So I said Joseph found the kingdom of God in Jesus because Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. And I claim that everyone who goes looking for the kingdom of God will find the kingdom of God. And so here's the question for you. Are you seeking the kingdom of God? Are you? I hope and I pray that the answer to that question is yes. I mean, I don't know why you would go to church if you weren't seeking the kingdom of God. But I want to remind you that you have a great responsibility upon your shoulders in this regard. Because Jesus not only said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened, but he also said this, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by that gate are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find are few. Jesus also warned that many who cry out to him, Lord, Lord, on the last day when he stands in judgment, many of those people who say, Lord, Lord, Jesus will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. They will be cast out of his presence as workers of lawlessness rather than true sons and daughters of the king. These are people I want you to understand, maybe people like you, people who go to to church, People who maybe wear the name of Christian but are insincere in their hearts or double-minded in their intentions. And so we see a great promise here in Joseph of Arimathea. The promise is that those who go looking for the kingdom of God who find it, and I think we need to be encouraged by that truth and by his example. But we also find that those who seek that kingdom are few. Joseph was not surrounded by a great crowd of people as he went looking for the kingdom of God. He was few and far between. He belonged to a very serious counterculture, those who enter through the narrow gate and often are alone amongst the crowds. So I would ask you again, where is your heart before God this morning? Can you honestly say you're seeking his kingdom? Or are you maybe one of those people who try to be half in and half out, right? If I sort of go to church every now and then, but then kind of live my life, hopefully that'll be enough and God will be satisfied. I want to keep just like one foot in the, in the door to heaven, and then I'll keep the rest of my body sort of over here living in the world, doing what I want. As if you can get the best of both worlds. Or like we say, have your cake and eat it too. And I want you to understand, there's no middle ground. There is no halfway. Either you are with Jesus or you are against Jesus. Either you belong to his counterculture or you don't belong to him at all. Now let's look at why Joseph belonged to a counterculture. Why, why is this gate narrow? Why do only a few find it? Even when Jesus promises that all who seek it will find it. And I think the answer is found in the consequences of Joseph's decision. You heard Trisha talk about this a little bit with the kids, and I want to reiterate it to you as well. You need to understand, Joseph wasn't just giving up an empty tomb that he had purchased for himself. 
If that was all he was giving up, I think that would be a, a pretty small price to pay. Actually, though, in taking the crucified body of Jesus in his own arms, I have to believe, and carrying it to the tomb and burying it on his own personal property, Joseph was taking a stance to be identified with Jesus. Joseph was letting the world know that he was a follower of Jesus. Joseph proved in that moment then that he was willing to give up anything to be called a follower of Christ. Yeah, he did surrender his possessions. He gave up the tomb and he purchased fine linen cloths to wrap Jesus in and bury him. He surrendered, though, more importantly, his reputation. Remember, this was a guy who belonged to the council that chose to crucify Christ. Do you think that come Monday morning they would take him back after he had chosen to bury Jesus and make a stance with Christ? He surrendered his heart to Jesus. He served the master whom he loved, even though that master no longer had the power to make any demands upon him. Joseph followed through and made sure he was cared for. But most of all, you need to understand, Joseph put his, his very life on the line. By requesting the body of Jesus and by burying it on his property, Joseph had made a stance with Jesus. And that action alone could have cost him his life. If the religious leaders, that council that he was a part of, saw this behavior as an act of sedition, as undermining their authority, then Joseph could have been killed in a back alley of Jerusalem for that decision. And yet Joseph embraced the cost of discipleship because he knew the greater value of Jesus. In this moment, Joseph was declaring this. He was declaring, I'll, I'll give up my possessions for you, Jesus. I'll give up my good name and my reputation for you, Jesus. I will even give up my life for you, Jesus. In Mark's account of this very same scene, he actually specifically uses the word courage, that Joseph had courage to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus because it was a dangerous decision. But I think that this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us, that following Jesus comes with a high cost. Uh, if you've been hanging around here for a while, we have been in Luke's gospel for a very long time, slowly making our way through this book. And, and so let me remind you of some of the things that Jesus said some of the things that we have looked at as we've made our way through Luke's gospel. These are all verses just from Luke. I didn't even have to go anywhere else. Listen closely as I read these. These are the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
And you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are merely unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Man, these are the words of Jesus. And these are intense words. I mean, if you've not considered what it costs to follow after Jesus, you need to reflect on those words and make sure you're ready and willing to pay that price. The point is this. Those who look for the kingdom of God, they will find it. And to enter into that kingdom, once they have found it, they will pay a heavy price. Even though that kingdom is established by Jesus, there's a price that comes with walking through those doors. Jesus himself, he paid the ultimate price. He made it so the doors of that kingdom are open for you, for me, for sinners like us. And God welcomes and receives us because of what Christ did. That's grace. But don't think that just because of what Christ did to pay that price for you, that you then have no indebtedness to him. Quite contrary. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. But in taking the life of Christ upon yourself, you must pay a great price. I would say that it's a life in exchange for a life. Like Paul says, you have died. You have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, it's no longer your life which you live. Your life doesn't belong to you. Rather, it is Christ's life. It belongs to him for his purposes, for his glory, for him to do with as he pleases. And so I want to say again, because I want it to be very clear, all who seek after the kingdom of God will find it because it is the spirit of God inside of you that leads you to seek that kingdom. And will eventually take you into the loving arms of God himself. But all who seek after that kingdom will also pay the highest price possible in this life. You will have to daily die to yourself. You will have to learn to not be selfish. You will have to yearn for Jesus to have all of your heart. You will have to love the process of being humble and low. And I want to point out that if Joseph hadn't been willing to associate himself with Jesus, Joseph never would have found the kingdom of God. He wouldn't have entered into it. If he had not been willing to surrender his life, he wouldn't have been a part of that kingdom. And so, in other words, I warn you again, don't be deceived. If you are not wholly willing to give your life over to Jesus, then you shouldn't expect that he will share his eternal life with you. Yes, salvation is absolutely free. It is a gift of God. But it is also an exchange, a life for a life. Jesus gives you his eternal life, and in return he asks for your earthly life. And now here's what I want to point out, okay? Um, if you're anything like me, you actually think that's a pretty good deal. Like, I would gladly give up this earthly life for eternity, right? Jim Elliott, he says, uh, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And in addition to that, it sounds really heroic. It sounds really noble, doesn't it? Even Jim Elliott's like a hero to me because he died a martyr's death to bring the, the Christian message to the Alka Indians. Like, sacrificing my life sounds, it sounds adventurous. It sounds glorious. 
And I'm kind of like drawn to that because I would love to like be a hero of some story, right? Maybe it's just me. Uh, But maybe you've heard me say this before, and I want you to hear me say it again. I would gladly die for my wife because I love her and because that's impressive, and then hopefully she would spend the rest of her life telling other people how awesome I am, right? (laughs) The problem is sometimes I won't even do dishes for my wife. Do you see the great irony there? Because there's no glory in doing dishes. I've done it. And, and a lot of times she doesn't even really notice, you know? I'm like, at least she'll like, be like, Grady, you're so great. I love you. It's not exciting. It's not epic. It's mundane. It's ordinary. It's, it's unexciting. It's boring. And I want you to see my point here. You may claim that you would gladly take up your cross and die for Jesus. And that's great. And I applaud you for that, and you need to do that. But, like I've said, would you do the dishes for Jesus? What about the little things in your life, the unheroic, very normal and mundane things? Would you choose to put to death your sinful anger, even when nobody else would even really notice? Would you cease to justify your sin before God and make excuses for it, even when that's just all in your head and no one will ever cheer you on for it? Would you love your brother or sister in Christ? Would you sacrifice to love your neighbor and point them to Jesus, even though no one will applaud you for it? Will you entrust your money to God and give some of it up for him and his purposes? Would you do the dishes for your wife? Would you set down your cell phone and give your children some of your attention? Would you give up a little bit of your time to read your Bible a little bit more or to belong to one of our family churches or to serve in our children's ministry? Paul says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. For you, is it just a matter of talk? I think what it means by power is power that brings Jesus honor in both the little things and the big things. And you would die for your faith. You might claim that. But would you be willing to build discipline into your life so that you read the Bible on a more regular basis? You claim you would sacrifice everything for Jesus, but would you commit to actually just praying for 10 minutes a day? You claim that God has your heart But if he also took your cell phone or your job or your comfort or your security or your family or your reputation or your internet access away, would that be okay? And I'm not joking about that, seriously. Because it's one thing to say that he can have your heart but then keep all these other little things for yourself. Okay, I've been a little hard on you this morning, and I I hope it feels that way, actually, because I don't want anybody in this room to leave and, and stand before Jesus on the day when he separates the sheep from the goats and be one of those people who says to him, Lord, Lord, I thought I belonged to you, and hear him say to you, actually, you're a worker of lawlessness, and I never knew you. It would break my heart if you were one of those people 
because I think I would share some responsibility in that. But let me turn a little corner now and make something clear. And if you've not been able to pay attention to anything else because of the chaos in the room, I hope that you'll pay attention to this, honestly. Why do we give our obedience to Jesus? Why do we give our loyalty to him? Why do we follow him? Why do we obey his commands? Why do we surrender everything? Why do we give up, hopefully, both big and small for Christ? Why? Um, Last week, I, I think I made a small mistake in my preaching that someone called to my attention. And I want to explain this. Um, I said last week that our elders at Maricopa Springs are convinced that God's Word teaches that there's an authority structure to how the church is organized. I believe that there's also an authority structure taught by the Bible to how the family is organized. And I said it's our conviction at Maricopa Springs that Scripture teaches that the office of elder or pastor at a church is reserved for men. I also said I didn't like that idea that it doesn't really make sense to me from a worldly perspective, I would say that that's true, okay? And I hope you'll give me some grace because all of our lives were in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus and brought into greater obedience to his word. But where, where I screwed up, and this is where I want to apologize and hopefully help you understand, is I might have given the impression that where God's word commands something, I simply suck it up and obey God's word and just do my duty because that's what he said and that settles it. And if I gave that impression, forgive me because that's wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. Look at verses 53 through 56 if you glance back at them. I think that you'll see that one of the reasons why we obey God, maybe the primary reason that we obey God, is because we delight in giving our lives over to Him. The reason we conform our lives to His commands is because everything that God commands is good. Everything that God commands is right. Everything that God commands is true. Yeah, obedience does come with some challenges. If you've not had that experience, then I suggest that maybe you're not trying very hard to obey. But it also is delightful, isn't it? To obey God delights the heart. I don't think that Joseph gave up his tomb and put his life on the line simply because he felt a sense of duty or obligation. I think he did it because he loved Jesus. And in the midst of this tragedy that he was going through, showing honor to Jesus brought him some joy. And if you look at the women in our text who make plans and preparation to adorn the body of Jesus with spices and prepare it for burial, I don't think that they took that task up out of just sheer responsibility, as if it was an emotionless thing that they were just going to do because that's what was required of them. I think they did it out of deep affection for Christ. And notice that at the very end of verse 56, actually look at this. I think this is fascinating. Instead of doing what they had on their hearts to do in that moment, you know what they do instead? They prepare and they go back to wait out the Sabbath because they know the importance of obedience to God's commands. It was a rule for the Jews 
that you would rest on the Sabbath. And even though they knew that the body of Christ should be properly prepared, that that would be honoring to him, actually what would be more honoring is to obey the words of God. And I think they found joy in that in the midst of their sadness. They rested because they knew that everything that God had commanded is good and right and true. And so I want you to understand this. I talked a lot about the cost of discipleship this morning, and discipleship comes with a great cost. But do you believe as well that there is a joy to discipleship? That discipleship comes with great joy. These people in this story had sought the kingdom of God, and they found it in Jesus. And then they paid the price to follow him. They gave up their lives to be associated with Jesus, no matter what the price might be. And then they experienced, as a result, the great reward of knowing Jesus, the joy of discipleship. And that's so important. I want to try and say it another way. Um, I think that too many Christians think that the reward for the cost of discipleship, the prize for following Jesus, is heaven. Is that you? Do you think that the prize for following Jesus is heaven someday? Do you think that the reward for the cost that you're paying is heaven someday? Actually, I would say that's wrong. The reward for the cost of discipleship, the prize for following Jesus is Jesus. That's the prize. And we're not waiting until we die for that reward to be granted to us. It has already been granted to us, even now in this life. We experience him, and he brings our heart great joy. Shortly after the events of these few verses, Joseph and these women, they're going to receive the reward for their faithfulness. They're actually going to see Jesus resurrected. And and we don't have the details of those moments. We don't need those details recorded. I mean, we don't have all of them. But I think it's safe to say that at some point, during his 40 years of, of ministry, or sorry, 40 days of ministry after his resurrection, I think it's safe to say that Jesus said to these people what every Christian hopes to hear in their heart. Well done. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You paid the price. You followed me. And now enter into the reward of your master. If they didn't hear it in his resurrected body in those 40 days, I'm sure they heard it when they entered into glory and saw Jesus there. And we all want to hear that at the end of our lives, I hope, but but you have to understand too, we should be seeking and longing to hear that at the end of every single day of our lives. We should labor hard to hear Jesus say each and every day, as we lay in our beds at the stillness at the end of the day and maybe turn our hearts to God, shouldn't we want to hear Jesus say, well done, good job today, I'm proud of you. My heart delights in you for the way that you obeyed me today. You were obedient to my good commands, you were faithful to my name, and you have brought me great joy and great pleasure in watching you love and serve me with faithfulness. And when our anger boils over and we're tempted to sin, and then we take up our cross and we deny ourselves and we honor Jesus, do you understand that that pleases God? 
when you extend grace and forgiveness to others, when you would rather withhold it, do you know that God is pleased with you in that moment? When you resist the devil and you stand firm against temptation, God smiles down upon you. When you repent for wrongdoing and you turn once again back to Him, and by His grace, the power of the Holy Spirit renews your commitment to honor Him, the Father, our Heavenly Father, He cheers with joy over us, His children, in those moments. And when we obey the commands of God, as hard as that may be at some point, Jesus is pleased in the way that we prove our love for Him. And so, friends, if you seek the kingdom of God, you're going to find it. And if you're willing to pay a great price, you will enter into it. And upon entering that kingdom, what you will find is great joy, deep joy in Christ. He himself will be your reward. And in every place, in every way that you honor him with your ongoing obedience, he will smile over your faithfulness. He will be pleased in you. And you will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and you will be greatly rewarded in that. I want to re- or close by reading just a short section of Psalm 19. Listen closely to God's Word. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And I pray that we would believe that those who seek your kingdom will find it. I pray that it would be precious enough to us that we would forsake all else to have it. We thank you it's by your grace that we receive it. And I pray that we would be obedient to your word and find in that obedience great joy in you. Lord, would you carry us on in this endeavor, I pray. Amen.